in uh, in 2004, Tim McGraw, you know the name, Tim McGraw released a a hit song entitled "Live Like You Were Dying." A song which tells the story of a man in his early 40s who gets the news that he has a life-threatening illness. Upon learning that he had a limited time remaining, his perspective on life changes. In the song, the question is asked, when you get that kind of difficult, life-changing news, what do you do? And this is what he did. I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went... 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. That's crazy. I loved deeper. I spoke sweeter. And I gave forgiveness I'd been denying. And he said, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. He said, I was finally the husband that most the time I wasn't. I became a friend, a friend would like to have. And all of a sudden, going fishing wasn't such an imposition. And I went three times that year. I lost my dad. Well, I finally read the good book. And I took a good, long, hard look at what I'd do if I could do it all over again. Last week, when talking about the end times, I concluded with a truth that we all know. None of us are guaranteed a tomorrow in this earthly life. And if somehow, some way, you knew that your time was very limited, how would you like to live like you were dying? What would you want to do? Would you ride a bull named Fu Manchu? That's a death wish. Would you want to go somewhere you had never been before or see something you have never seen? If you knew your time was very limited, who would you like to talk to? Who would you want to spend your time with? Would you want to talk to a 
a favorite celebrity? Maybe visit an old friend? Or would you simply want to spend time with your family? In a roundabout way, Jesus was presented with these same kind of questions. And this morning, I want to show you how he chose, how he chose to spend the last few hours of his earthly life. From the Gospel of Matthew, we are continuing to look at the last week of Christ. The last week of His earthly ministry. The last week which just so happens to coincide with the Passover celebration in Jerusalem. As you know, Passover has its roots way back in Egypt. If you remember, the Jews had left the Promised Land because of a severe drought, and they moved to Egypt. And under the care and the protection of Joseph, who was the number two man in all of Egypt, and one of their very own, they flourished. But Joseph would later die. And eventually, the Jews would become the slaves of Pharaoh. For 400 years, the Jews longed to return to their promised land, but they couldn't. They were held in bondage and slavery until when the time was right, God raised up Moses to deliver a word to Pharaoh. Well, as you know, Pharaoh wouldn't listen. And God used the hardness of Pharaoh's heart to reveal to everyone that the God of Moses was the one true God amongst a land full of false gods. So God began to bring plagues upon the Egyptians, but Pharaoh still would not budge. Then at last, there came the judgment of the firstborn, the tenth plague, the final plague in God's rescue plan to deliver His people. And in anticipation of this final plague, a plague that would prompt a quick exodus from Egypt, the Jews were told by God to prepare. And this is what they did. On the tenth day, 
of the first month of the Hebrew calendar. That would be the 10th of Nisan. Each Jewish household was to find and take an unblemished male lamb, a year old, and that lamb was to live with the family for four days until the 14th day of the month, the 14th day of Nisan, when the lamb was to be killed at sunset. After the sacrificial lamb was killed, God told Moses to instruct the people, take the blood of the lamb and spread the blood on the top and on the sides of the doorway of their houses. Why? Because God was sending the angel of death to the land of Egypt that very night. And whenever the angel saw the blood of the sacrificial lamb applied to the doorway, because those in the house believed and obeyed God's word, the angel would skip over that household and there would be no death. God's judgment would pass over them. But, when there was no blood applied to the doorway, that very night, rest assured, death would certainly visit that home. Now, God also gave the Jews instructions about eating during this special time. On the 14th, After the blood of the lamb was applied to the doorway, the lamb was to be roasted and eaten that same night. And anything left over was to be burned in fire. They were also to eat bitter herbs to symbolize their bondage and slavery. And they were to eat unleavened bread because there would not be enough time to make bread the normal way, using yeast and letting the dough rise. That would take way too much time for they they would have to leave Egypt in a hurry. Well, just as God promised, the angel of death passed over Egypt and the land was filled with the bodies of the firstborn, and the firstborn of the herds and the flocks. It must have been a devastating and gut-wrenching experience. And in response to this tenth and final plague, Pharaoh let the Jews So they quickly packed up and began their exodus back to the promised land with the command by God to observe 
the Passover celebration each and every year as a continual reminder of their deliverance by God from their bondage and slavery in Egypt. You know the story. That's the history of Passover. Now let's fast forward some 1,400 years to Jerusalem, where as many as 2 million devout Jews, maybe more from all over the world, have gathered together in the holy city for the annual celebration. Now, if you recall, Jesus and His disciples were in the area. And the disciples asked Jesus where they would be eating the Passover meal because preparation was necessary. And whether this was a a supernatural thing, or it had been prearranged by Jesus, I don't know. But Jesus told Peter and John to go on ahead into Jerusalem to look for a man carrying a jug of water, which would stand out because in that culture, sorry ladies, in that culture, It was the women who carried the water jugs. Let's stop there for a moment. Because I want to talk about this man with the water jug. Have you ever wondered if your service to the Lord really mattered? Does your service to the Lord really matter? I think sometimes we feel we have to do something great for the Lord when it comes, when it comes to serving Him. But the truth is, that's not what He asks of us. He asks us to be faithful and obedient so He can use us how He chooses. That's it. This man is carrying a jug of water, something men did not normally do. But he is faithful, doing this strange errand that the Lord has asked him to do. This man is completely unknown to us. And yet, some 2,000 years later, we are still talking about this man. So if you are one of those who faithfully serves behind the scenes and doesn't seem to get noticed, trust me, you are by the one who counts. Anyway, at this point, the location for the Passover meal is completely unknown to the disciples. 
Why is Jesus being so secretive here? Well, just prior, for 30 pieces of silver, Judas plotted with the Jewish religious leaders, not the Romans, but the Jewish religious leaders to betray Jesus. And Judas is looking for the right place and the right time to turn Jesus in without creating a riot. If this address had been known, Judas could have alerted the religious leaders of his location. Secondly, which I think is even more important, secondly, this last meal with his disciples is so important to Jesus. So important. Knowing that he only has a few hours left. He takes the necessary steps to ensure they are not disturbed in any way. It's that important to Jesus. Well, sure enough, just as Jesus said, Peter and John find a man carrying a jug of water. And that man leads them to a large furnished upper room where Peter and John get busy making preparations to eat the Passover meal by obtaining an approved lamb, having it slain by the priests at the temple, and then roasting it for the meal. It would also, they would also get bitter herbs, a sauce made of a, a stewed fruit and nut mixture, unleavened bread, and red wine typically diluted with water. In addition, the room where they were going to eat had to be thoroughly clean. So they had a lot of work to do to get ready for this evening meal. When it was evening, Jesus came with the rest of his disciples to the upper room for the Passover meal. A meal which follows a sequence of ritual steps. It begins with a blessing for the meal. And when this blessing is given, it's done while the head of the household holds a cup of wine. The first of four cups of wine, which coincide with the four promises related to the Passover given by God to His people in Egypt. They are found in Exodus, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. should be on the board behind me. And they read, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out of out from the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. 
I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. After the blessing and the drinking of the first cup, which is called the cup of sanctification, for God said, I will bring you out. I will bring you out. There is the washing of the hands symbolizing the need for spiritual cleansing and holiness. And it also serves as a practical purpose, for as you know, they eat with their hands. So at this point in the meal, they would take a bitter herb or use a vegetable like lettuce or a potato and dip it in salt water to create bitterness, representing the bondage and slavery and Egypt. And then the question would be asked, why do we do this? Why do we do this? And that would prompt the head of the household, in this case Jesus, to explain the meaning of the Passover story. They would sing from the Psalms, and then they would drink from the second cup of wine called the cup of deliverance. For God said, I will deliver you from their bondage. With the second cup of wine consumed, we then come to the unleavened bread. In a Jewish household, there would be three sheets. Three sheets of unleavened bread provided for the Passover meal. Three. (laughs) Three sheets. Kept in a cloth bag with three compartments, which keeps the sheets together, and yet they are separated. According to Jewish tradition, Jewish tradition, and this is interesting, the middle sheet of bread is removed from the bag and broken in two. The middle sheet broken in two, which is symbolic of being broken and incomplete until the fulfillment of God's promises. One half is shared at the table right then, while the other half is wrapped in a napkin and hidden somewhere in the room. Or maybe in this case, it's just set aside only to be eaten later at the end of the meal like a dessert. You follow me? With the bread in hand, they will fold bitter herbs into it like a sandwich and then dip it into the bowl containing the stewed fruit and nut mixture. And I think it is right here Right here, where we come to our passage for this morning. 
So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, and we will begin with verse 20. <clears throat> Matthew 26, verse 20. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, He said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray Me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to Him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good if that man, if he had not been born. And Judas who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. The disciples have heard many shocking things from Jesus over the years. But this one had to take the cake. And each disciple, in his own self-doubt, in his own self-doubt, went to Jesus to ask if he was the betrayer. Jesus knew it was Judas. But Jesus did not publicly single him out. Instead, all Jesus would say was that it was one of the twelve who dipped his hand in the bowl. A common bowl. A bowl they were all using. Now there are a couple of things I want to point out here before we move on. This is one of those paradoxes in the Bible. And there are many. Because it reveals the sovereignty of God and also the free will of man at the same time. Judas, like any rejecter of Christ, acts on his own motives, acts on his own choices, acts on his own free will. Judas operates from his own greed and his own selfishness, and he betrays Jesus. Yet, yet, everything Judas does is fit by God into his plan so that Judas plays a crucial role in the death of Christ, just as God designs. 
Judas will never be able to make the claim that to God that he was simply fulfilling prophecy. Judas was not driven by God to betray Jesus. He chose to do so. And yet God used that choice for his divine purpose. Now there's another point I want to make before we move on. Don't make the mistake in believing that Jesus did not love Judas. Jesus loved Judas just as much as he loved the others, but Judas rejected God's love and he did not recognize Jesus as the Lord. If you notice in our passage, when the disciples question Jesus about the betrayal, knowing they all had a fallen nature, each one asked Him, Surely, not I, Lord. But when Judas asked the question, it was, Surely, not I, Rabbi. Even then, after spending three years with Jesus and the other disciples, Judas only recognized Jesus as a teacher. Not as the Lord. Now it's not said here, but according to John, Judas immediately leaves to tell the religious leaders where they can find Jesus later in the garden that evening. Only eleven remain in the upper room with Jesus. And after the main meal is finished, it's time for dessert. It's time for dessert. And the other half portion of the bread comes into play. It's here that Jesus adds a whole new dimension to the meal and it becomes what we call the Lord's Supper. Where it's Jesus who takes center stage. So let's pick up with verse 26. While they were eating... Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, He broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is My body. And when He had taken a cup and given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is where it gets really real. Really real. In this passage, Jesus took the bread knowing that it represents His own physical body. He gave thanks for it. Giving God the credit. And then He broke it. He broke it. For He had the sole authority to lay down His life and to take it back up again. He broke it. Not Judas who would betray Him. Not the Jewish religious leaders who wanted to see Him dead. Not even the Romans. Jesus broke it. He then shares the bread with His disciples and He says, take, eat. This bread represents my body. And Jesus is saying, this is just so amazing, Jesus Jesus is saying all of this knowing that within a few hours, hours, He will become the once and for all sinless and innocent Lamb that God will sacrifice to forgive sins. He knows this. Like the spotted, spotless lamb that was sacrificed in Egypt so that death would pass over those who believed. Jesus is the only spotless lamb who could die for the sins of others. The only one. The command was to take and eat. And all the disciples had to do was to receive it. That's all we have to do. By faith, receive the forgiveness made possible by the Lord's sacrificial death on our behalf. Then Jesus takes the third cup of wine during the Passover meal. It's called the cup of redemption. The cup of redemption or the cup of blessing, which coincides with the third promise God made to His people, which says, I will also redeem you 
with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. This cup represents the blood of Jesus which was poured out for the redemption of many. And with outstretched arms on a cross, God's judgment and wrath would fall upon His innocent Son and pass over, pass over those who would place their faith in Him. His body, His blood would institute a new covenant of grace for those who believe, thereby fulfilling and satisfying the requirements of the old covenant. Jesus again thanks God, knowing His time is very short. He gives the cup to His disciples and He tells them to drink. Now there still remains a fourth cup of wine called the cup of restoration. The cup of restoration. For God says to His people in Egypt, then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. Jesus says He will no longer drink until that day He drinks it with them in His Father's kingdom. And this is something that would have surely resonated with the disciples. Let me explain. At the end of a Galilean betrothal ceremony, after the bride has accepted this legally binding engagement to her groom, the groom would then promise to all in attendance that he would not drink wine until their wedding feast, only after he had prepared a place for his bride in his father's house. This is a pledge by Jesus that speaks of the Lord's return after He has prepared a place for us in His Father's house. It speaks of a time when the Lord's earthly kingdom will be fully restored. And then as Jesus has said, He will drink from the cup with His people at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the Lord's Supper looks backwards to the past. Remembering the finished work of Jesus. But it also causes us to look forward in joy and in hope to our future with Him. We're told after singing one last hymn, Jesus and His disciples walked to the Garden of Gethsemane where He knows He will be arrested.
Jesus lived like he was dying. And he was. It's just a matter of hours. Hours. And my question for all of us, you and me, are you living like Jesus died for you? That's the question, isn't it? Are you living like Jesus died for you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time in your word. I thank you for this opportunity to share in the Lord's Supper this morning. Father, I pray that it would be pleasing in your sight. I pray that Jesus would be honored and glorified and lifted up in our hearts and our minds. Father, turn our face to you. Bless this time. In Jesus' name. Amen. I read Psalm 118 to you this morning. This is the last song Jesus sang. This is the last song that he sang. And that passage up there where it says they sung sung a hymn, it's Psalm 118. Jesus knows he only has hours left before he would go to a cross. Only hours. So with that in mind, now listen to Psalm 118. Ponder how Jesus could have actually sung this. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Knowing what's coming. Knowing what's coming in a couple of hours. He is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Jesus is singing this. His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say, His loving kindness is everlasting. 
Oh, let those who fear the Lord, that's us, the Gentiles. Oh, let us who fear the Lord say, His loving kindness is everlasting. From my distress, from my distress, I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. Let's stop there for a second. Really, Lord? I'm suffering, Lord. I'm hurting. Are you really for me? Don't you think that? Jesus is going to a cross and he says, The Lord is for me. I will not fear. He will suffer. Make no mistake on that. He will suffer. But he will not fear. (gasps) What can man do to me? Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. And there are many. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surround me. Ooh. In the name of the Lord, I will cut them off. They surround me. Yes, they surround me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surround me like bees. It's like a picture of the cross. His enemies had surrounded him. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was falling. I get a picture of Jesus carrying his cross and falling at the weight of it. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. That was the last song sung by the Lord. 
knowing what he knows. How hard that must have been. The disciples had no clue. But for Jesus, it was very vivid. I think sometimes we go through life and life can be hard, extremely difficult. We have more questions than we have answers. Things don't seem fair. Things don't seem right. We question God. Why am I suffering? Why are you doing this to me? I do that. I'm a pastor and I do that. And sometimes I even doubt. God, are you really for me? He is. He is. Just like he was for Jesus before he went to a cross. He loves us that much. Don't let your circumstances taint or cause you to doubt God's love for you. We can't do that. God loves you dearly. He proved it by sending His Son to a cross for you. That was the ultimate expression of His love for us. What more could He do? That was the ultimate. He loves you that much. And He wants you to know His love. And that love is in the person of Jesus Christ. Now maybe you are here this morning and you do not know Him as your Lord and Savior. I would love to introduce you to Him. Maybe you're looking for a church home. Maybe you just need prayer. Whatever the case may be, I just ask that you respond to Him because He loves you. Larry? Yeah.